federal judge rules 18 to 20 year olds have a right to carry a gun in Texas. Plus, an interview with Cam Edwards of Bearing Arms on the upward trend in support for gun control. That and more on this episode of the Weekly Reload Podcast. I made the devil run. I gave him poison just for fun. All right. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of the Weekly Reload Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Gutowski. I'm also the founder of TheReload.com, where you can head over and check out our membership options today if you want to get exclusive access to hundreds of pieces of reporting and analysis that you can't find anywhere else. Uh, you also get early access to this podcast here and the opportunity to appear on the show like one of our members has again this week. Uh, listen to the end of the show if you want to get to... Get to know one of our members. It's one of my favorite segments. Um, but before we do that, let's let's bring on our guest. We got Cam Edwards from Bearing Arms, one of the other great publications. If you want to keep up to date on what's happening with guns in America, so Cam, welcome to the show. Thank you for for being with us again. Hey, Steve. Thanks for the invite. As always, man. I and I'm I'm so upset with myself. I was literally wearing a Pixies t-shirt until about five <laughs> minutes ago. And I thought I better take this off and just put on a plain t-shirt rather than, uh, you know, we could have had the, uh, the whole, you know, eighties, nineties, yeah. uh, alternative music scene covered. Mm. Yeah. This, uh, I got this from old Navy, like a good middle-aged <laughs> white guy. It's a nice Nirvana shirt. I, I like the design. What can you do? Right. Um, I, I still buy band shirts at Hot Topic when they have good ones. So I'm not above buying a band shirt from Old Navy. You know? Me either. Why not? Me either. So, uh, also, you have uh, some, before we get started on, on what we we're going to talk about today, which is, you know, the some bad trends that have been identified in, in the latest AP poll and some of the political intrigue heading into the midterm elections. Before we get to that, you actually there's uh, maybe a little bit of breaking news on your beard situation. This is a closely watched uh, news story for among many people who, uh, in the gun media space. Uh, you've got the great beard. It's uh, definitely ZZ Top level uh, right now, but you have you have an update for us on that. I, I do. This is actually, uh, and this is going to be a, a a reload exclusive here because we're breaking the news here on the podcast. But uh, yeah, this is my last media appearance with the uh, the wizard beard. Um, you know, I started growing this out first time like six years ago when my wife was first diagnosed with cancer, mm-hmm. and then over the years, you know, as she's like gone into remission and she's not been getting treatment, it's gotten shorter, it's gone longer. Uh, and so it's been growing. I've trimmed it a little bit, but it's been growing for the past two years because uh, the last round of immunotherapy cocktail that she was on like worked. I mean, the tumors were reduced by 50 percent. She hasn't been on any treatment in which is awesome over a year and a half. Right. I mean, it really is incredible. Um, we did get some news this week that's not so great. So uh, it looks like she'll probably be resuming treatment uh, in, in a few months. It's not the worst news possible, but uh, it's probably time for another dose of the uh, the drugs, um, which means, of course, that my superstition that it's been the beard all along that's been keeping her uh, healthy has now been disproven. She's been kind of bugging me. She was the one who wanted me to grow it out because she said, listen, you're already bald. If I'm losing my hair for chemotherapy, you shaving your head doesn't do anything. I want to <laughs> see what you look like with a big beard. Apparently now she's seen it and she said, um, OK, you can cut it off now. So tomorrow <laughs> yes. we are uh, we are going to my uh, my beard stylist, um, mm-hmm. Michael, at the Confident Barbershop in Richmond, Virginia. Great guy. Uh, and we're going to get 
a good chunk of this chopped off. It won't go away entirely, and I may very well start to grow it out immediately. But, uh, <laughs> but, but yeah, Monday's Camera Company. I, I will look a little bit different than I've looked for the last couple of years. Well, you heard it here first, folks. Uh, the beard is is going away. At least the the extended version of the beard. We're the extended version, a, yes. A director's cut now. It's coming down. <laughs> um, but uh, make sure, folks at home, you keep um, Mrs. E in your prayers. Uh, as well, and uh, and and follow along with with Cam as he uh, goes on his this beard journey. <laughs> this beard journey. Exciting, I just you know news. when I st- if I if I start growing it out, I'm going to do a lot better about trying to get sponsorship for the beard this time around. I don't there have you any you know beard butter sponsors or anything like that, so I got I got to get on that stick. It seems like a good fit. Yeah, I mean, you know, one of the most famous beards in in all of uh, gun media, I would say at this point. <laughs> So, uh, yeah, yeah any uh, ammo sponsors would like to, you know, yeah, yeah, who might be watching. I'm open for that as well, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, so let's let's move into our main topic for for this podcast. There's a new poll from the Associated Press that was published this week uh, that showed um, a number of different things. Interest, a lot of interesting stuff in there. Uh, but one of the biggest pieces of news to come out of it in my opinion at least is uh and and this actually ended up being the top line for usually when a poll comes out you'll see the the place that's paid for it will do it the main write-up and then everybody else will just sort of copy <laughs> what they said and so the top line that the ap identified was 71 percent of americans say they want either somewhat or much stricter gun laws uh and uh there's actually quite a lot of other interesting information in there and even that top line i don't think is like it's that's bad news in and of itself if you're a gun rights advocate. But to me, the more worrying part of that is the trend that they've found since uh, they started asking this question in this particular uh, setup back in 2013. The the number has gone up 19 points in that time. Um, December 2013, it was 51%. Now it's 71 or 52%. Now it's 71%. So uh, that that's not a good long term trend, and I'm interested um, in your uh, take on on this polling. What do you what do you think it means? Well, so first of all, I mean, I, you know, I'm, I'm always hesitant to give uh, too much weight to, to any one particular poll because we've seen mm-hmm. just over the past couple of months, and we also saw I, I can't remember what outfit it was, but I know you wrote about it. The Reload poll showing support for a ban on so called assault weapons uh, was at an all time low. Right. Yeah. I mean, that was just a couple of months That's ago. Quick, yeah. So yeah. that, you know, th- there's it's hard to separate the noise from the actual statistics. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I I think there might be a couple of things going on. First of all, since 2020, we've seen a big spike in violent crime. Uh, mm-hmm. Right. Not just, you know, mass shootings that get a lot of attention, but violent crime has gone up by, you know, homicides have increased by 30 percent in some cities. Um, and so a lot of people may very well feel like their communities have become more dangerous places, which also accounts, I think, for the rise in gun ownership. Right. But, uh, you know, for every person who says, I want to be able to protect myself, they, there may be one other person out there, maybe two who say, uh, we, we got to ban these guns uh, and then I'll be safe. So I think the crime trends have something to do with it. We also, again, over the past few months have had a couple of very high profile mass shootings uh, mm-hmm. in, you know, Buffalo uh, and Uvalde. And I think that that has probably had an impact as well. But, 
I wonder too, Stephen, I mean, like when you look at the trend legislatively uh, over the same time period, you know, we've seen what now 25 states adopt constitutional carry. Uh, we've seen, I think, on, uh, you know, in general, more states become more pro-gun than anti-gun uh, at a time in which, you know, according to this AP uh, poll, support for more gun control laws has been climbing. So it may be that on some level, there are people who say, OK, we've gone far enough or maybe even we've gone too far uh, and let's start to pull back. It doesn't mean that they're out there calling for confiscation, but, you know, issues do tend to go in cycles. Uh, mm -hmm. And it may be that, uh, you know, we we hit peak uh, nadir of support for gun control a couple of years ago. And now the pendulum is sort of starting to swing the other way. I think then the question becomes, what do we do about it? Right. And I think that for gun owners is is the fundamental issue of how do you change these trends? If, in fact, what this AP poll shows is even somewhat accurate. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you hit on a, a number of really good points there. Uh, the first one is, of course, this is just one poll. Uh, I will say that Gallup and Quinnipiac University also found, you know, an increase in support for stricter gun control legislation. Uh, all Basically, all of the post-Duvalde polls have found that, which is what you'd expect, right? Uh, sort of point you were getting at there is you, you tend to have an ebb and flow with, when, you, when it comes to support for gun control measures. And they tend to, in, you know, that, that support tends to increase in the aftermath of mass shootings or particularly high profile events. And Ubalde was one of the worst in American history, of course, uh, and was sandwiched between two other ones in relatively quick succession <clears throat> in Buffalo and uh, Highland Park. Mm. So, you know, it's not surprising that that number has gone up in, in this AP poll from the last time they did the poll or Gallup or, uh, or Quinnipiac there, there, I think it's pretty, uh, safe to say that the support has gone up to some degree. Uh, what what interests me more than that, is, and that's what a lot of these write-ups focused on, is just there's been an increase from two years ago when they did the last poll or whatever. But what you'll see if you look at the AP's um, history of that same question being asked over and over again is, yes, you'll get an increase and then a decrease when there isn't uh, you know, when you're not asking the question in the immediate aftermath of of a mass shooting, uh, and then you'll get an increase again after the next one, and then the decrease. The problem is that that's still trending upwards over time, over over that um, you know what nine nine year period, mm -hmm. and and that's what I think is the bigger concern uh, is where that's headed and what that means um, if it's true now. Gallup, if you, Gallup has a longer history on their poll, and it, there were times in the 1990s, and this tracks with your theory about, you know, rising murder rates mm -hmm. having an impact. In the 90s, were a much more violent time than right now, even even still, with these increases we've seen, and support in the Gallup poll was much higher back in the 90s. But also, the 90s is where we got new federal gun laws. And so that's that's what I think is the core concern here is like as this uh, support for stricter gun laws, even if it's just a generalized, I think I think we need stricter gun laws concept as that rises, the probability you're getting more gun control goes up as well, uh, especially at the federal level, I think. And we just did get a gun bill. Right. So I don't know. Is, do you think that we're past 
you know, it sounds like you, maybe you think uh, this is crested already and we're just seeing the, the, the sort of after effects before these numbers come back down, maybe. Or are you concerned about them continuing on that trajectory? Yeah, no, I am concerned about it continuing on that trajectory, because, as you say, you know, with the AP poll, when you look over the last decade or so, even the, the trend lines keep going up. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think as gun owners, again, I mean, we always need to be looking at the arguments that, that gun control advocates are making and the arguments that are resonating with the American people, because, you know, listen, if you're a if you're a Second Amendment advocate and you're not willing to acknowledge that non-gun owners are the majority in this country, you're not going to be an effective advocate. Right. So we're already starting out from a position of we have to to be politically effective, uh, be able to talk to and persuade non-gun owners uh, that, you know, gun control is not the way to a safer society because many of those non-gun owners don't really care about the constitutionality of a particular law. Let's be honest. Right. Um, and so I think the argument has to be made on, on sort of different grounds. And I don't know, honestly, how good a job we are doing at that, um, particularly, again, when the anti-gun message, I think, is is false, but it's powerful. It's if you want to protect your kids You'll pass this common sense regulation, right? If you don't want to see, you know, second graders murdered in a classroom, well, then by God, you'll 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 call for banning these guns. Um, you know, think back to Carolyn Maloney's comments during the uh, House Oversight hearing with the uh, uh, Daniel Defense and uh, Ruger CEO, right? Where I mean, she literally asked at one point, "How many children have to die before you'll stop making these products?" Right. So that's the argument that's coming out from the other side. And I don't know. Hey, I don't I don't know. The media doesn't really want to hear from our side all that often. Um, but I also think that, you know, over the past couple of years, I mean, the NRA used to be a very effective advocacy organization, but you don't see NRA people on TV anymore. I can't remember the last time, you know, Wayne LaPierre did Meet the Press or, or CBS Sunday Morning. Yeah, it's probably um, been a decade, right, at this point? I, I, at least, you know, three years or so. Um, I think it's been longer than that. Yeah. It, it may very well have been, you know, but I, I think that we've got to be creative in how we are talking to people. And it starts, I guess, with talking to our friends and family uh, mm -hmm. and, you know, looking for that audience of one as opposed to the audience of millions. Um, but I think also, too, like we we do need to be able to address and engage the arguments from gun control advocates and point out why they're wrong. Yeah, I mean, I, I just think that there's uh, there's this sort of tendency, especially now after Bruin, that, uh, you know, the courts are going to fix all these problems for us. Even if they did pass an assault weapons ban, it probably wouldn't, with, with you know, stand up in court uh, in the long run. And so maybe it's not as much of a concern to be persuasive. Um, or to win that sort of uh, public relations battle, uh, but it sounds like you don't you don't agree with that necessarily. No, I don't. I mean, look, we just saw Roe versus Wade overturned, so you know, I mean, I think it's I think it's fair to say that the uh, the at first opportunity, um, it, you know, when Democrats have a majority of their appointed justices on the Supreme Court, Heller and McDonald and Bruin are, are all in the crosshairs, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, yeah. And so we honestly need to be laying the groundwork in the court of public opinion now mm -hmm. so that when Democrats are in a position to do something in the court of law uh, to weaken or, or, or obliterate our Second Amendment rights, you know, we've already 
started to persuade Americans that that's the wrong thing to do, uh, that Prohibition 2.0 is is not going to do any better than uh, the, the first go round when it was alcohol. Um, so, no, I don't think we can afford to just say point to Bruin and say, well, I mean, look, if there wasn't you know a, a comparable gun control law in American history, well, then it's not constitutional. Because, again, the argument from the left is if you want to stop kids from being murdered in their classroom, you'll support this. That's a very emotional argument. Yeah. Um, talking about the constitutionality of a particular gun control law is not emotional for, for most people, right? It, do, it just doesn't resonate the same way. Um, so I think that's why we need to be talking about, you know, firearms in terms of protecting human life. Uh, we need to be talking about armed citizen stories. We need to do a much better job of promoting defensive gun uses within. I think we do a pretty good job. You do. And and, and we do at Bearing Arms. You guys have an armed citizen do, story yeah. of Dan Cam and Company. But mm-hmm. um, let's even say within the broader conservative media, I'd like to see more emphasis placed on those types of stories. Uh, and then, you know, listen, there's some great advocacy that's happened at the grassroots level. Uh, I wrote about this at Bearing Arms earlier this week. I don't know if you saw this. There's a group out of Louisville called Armed and Educated. Uh, and they put on an event that was like it was it was the perfect counter to a gun buyback because mm. when folks went, they got like a 15 minute lesson on gun safety, like how to store a firearm. Here's how you handle the firearm, just real basic stuff. And then they got like a basket full of groceries and they've done this with gas card giveaways. Like, you know, they've held the the, you know, the 15 minute sessions right there at the pump. But you get a twenty five dollar gas card and, and you get a little bit of knowledge about firearms. That to me is such a creative and inventive way of, 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 you know, outreach to the community. And it's so easy. You know, this is something that we could be replicating in every city across the country. Every state level or local 2A group could be doing this on a weekly or monthly basis. Um, and that I think are that we need to be doing more of those types of things to sort of get beyond our talking points and to actually, you know, connect with some of the the, the Americans that uh, that I think are reachable on this issue. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. It reminds me a lot too of uh, uh, like Rick Ector's program mm-hmm. up in in Detroit. Yeah, uh, Tony Simon's diversity shoot in New Jersey mm-hmm. and Pennsylvania. I mean, like there are a lot mm-hmm. of these efforts that are underway. Um, I don't know how much of that is getting you know support from the big organizations, but. Uh, but again, like I just think there's so much fertile ground to be sown here, uh, and and it is already being done in some cases at the local level. We just need to see a lot more of it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, no, that's a really good point about uh, not just that persuasion is necessary, but also here are some examples of uh, how to do it in a, in a good way. But um, uh, now to bring the party back down, though, <laughs> um, uh, another interesting point to me in this AP poll, um, and perhaps just in, uh, you know, the, the, the fact that we still see that increase in support for gun control, um, you know, in 2022, after a mass shooting, even though that, that AP poll itself identified a seven point jump in people who, uh, say they have a gun in the home. Um, you know, obviously you and I both, uh, and I, I've espoused this idea a number of times, but, uh, believe, you know, I believe that the rise in new gun ownership, especially among demographics that have not traditionally been, 
associated with gun ownership in America, you know, minorities, women, uh, people who live in more um, urban or suburban areas and, and people who use guns for self-defense or competitive shooting instead of hunting, you know, the, this sort of gun culture 2.0 that we've talked a lot about, uh, that the rise in those sorts of gun owners and the, just the general increase in new gun owners over the last several years is likely to lead to um, fewer people wanting more gun uh, restrictions because when people become gun owners, they uh, polling has found that they generally are less supportive of gun restrictions for and pr probably for fairly straightforward reasons. You, if you buy a gun, you probably don't want to have that gun taken away from you or your ability to do what you want with the gun restricted, right? Uh, but we're not seeing that effect necessarily in uh, in these new polls. Uh, does that concern you at all, or is uh, how do you read that? You know, it 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 concerns me, but at the same time, you know, again, like this is why I try not to put too much stock in any given poll because mm -hmm. this was I don't know how many people uh, were surveyed for this, but let's say it was a thousand people. It's uh, thirteen hundred. Um, Okay, so fifteen hundred. So the experience of a new gun owner in a state like California may be very different than the experience of a new gun owner in a state like Texas or Florida, mm -hmm. um, simply because of the state level laws that are already in place, right? So it may be that a new gun owner in Texas says, "Wow, you know, I can't believe that I can carry without a, a license to carry. This is crazy. I, I think we need some more gun control laws." But the new gun owner in California may say, "It's freaking ridiculous. I had to wait ten days." Yeah before I could go and pick up my firearm when I had this abusive ex who's, you know, stalking me the entire time. Uh, no, I don't want to see more gun control laws. So, you know, just like everybody's, everybody's reason for being a gun owner is personal. I, I think the reasons why people might want more or less gun control also is probably in many cases, personal in nature. They're, they're not just looking at aggregate statistics. They're thinking about their own lives. And, and, uh, and again, I think the, I think ultimately for most people who even say that they are in favor of more gun control laws, and this is my personal opinion, I think most of that comes from less of a hatred or fear of firearms and more of a desire for increased public or personal safety, mm -hmm. you know? And, sure. and so I think, again, when we can start to talk about, like, this is something that I, I try to write about at Bearing Arms, even though it's not directly Second Amendment related, I like to talk about some of the things that, you know, we're seeing in the criminal justice system that even if you think gun control is a great idea, um, unless we fix these flaws in the in the justice system, you know, nothing's going to improve. Uh, we have a public defender shortage in a lot of states right now. You know, people are being freed because their their cases aren't going to trial in a speedy fashion. So you've got, you know, criminal defendants who are back out on the street. Conversely, you may have people who are stuck behind bars for a year or more because they can't get a public defender appointed to them, which is also the wrong thing to do. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the the bail policies that we see in states like California uh, in New York, uh, California Attorney General Rob Bonta released a report on Thursday showing that violent crime and property crime, both up in California, arrest rates are down uh, mm -hmm. at the same time. Right. Mm -hmm. So it's not like fewer people are being arrested because it's just California is just becoming a safer place. More people are getting away with murder and carjackings and robberies, you know, and things of that nature. So until we actually start to address, uh, you know, the left talks about the inequities in the justice system. I'm just talking about the nuts and bolts 
of how, you know, our, our, our criminal justice system is supposed to work. Um, mm. And, you know, I think, I don't know, again, I don't know how, how, how much this argument resonates, but to me, it just seems silly, uh, not to mention unconstitutional in many cases, but it seems silly to say, well, let's throw another gun law on the books when we're failing to address serious offenders, right? Mm. But meanwhile, we can point to places like Dallas, Texas. They saw, I believe it was a 30% reduction in homicides last year, the first year the constitutional carry was in effect. Um, they used a strategy where they were looking at like micro hotspots, where are the homicides, where are these shootings actually taking place um, and flooding you know, that half block or flooding that one corner uh, with resources. Buffalo, New York saw what they did in Dallas. Uh, they implemented that this year. They've seen, I believe, a 36% reduction in homicides in Buffalo. Mm. So, you know, I, I think if we can point out as gun owners that, it, I think it was a police chief in Buffalo said, is about 75 people in that city who are driving violent crime. Yeah. And I think to me that that should be an argument that, that works with non-gun owners. Do you really want to try to pass a new law that could criminalize Tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands or millions of people with the harm falling disproportionately on, you know, the working class, on minorities, the people who the left complains are over police. Or <laughs> maybe, you know, we can uh, do a, a targeted deterrence. We can actually identify those individuals who are responsible for driving violent crime. We can try to get them help if they're if they're fixable. But we can also, you know, prosecute the hell out of them if if. They're not going to change their ways. Uh, that's a program that has proven results. It's got a track record of success. Why don't we try to do that and make those investments rather than trying to turn a, a constitutionally protected right into a criminal offense? Yeah, and that, that is similar logic behind the um, the violence interruption programs that you've seen, which have mm -hmm. been supported um, in in a in fairly rare fashion across the political spectrum and uh you know largely because it doesn't involve new gun bans or or uh broad targeting of of categories of people but is meant to be more focused like you're describing there and and also to uh, sort of probably goes hand in hand with what you're talking about because uh community violence interruption programs are meant to be non-police operations because obviously uh many communities don't have a good relationship with the police departments uh, uh, and so forth. And, and, you know, there's a lot, there's obviously a ton of, a ton more about uh, criminal justice reform that we could get into. But uh, another thing I wanted to, uh, and maybe we shouldn't in, in a future podcast actually, but, but um, another point I wanted to make is uh, while there isn't necessarily a, an obvious effect on the generalized support for some more restrictions on gun laws, uh, which is, you know, more of a, a barometer of how people are feeling and less about what policies they would support. Um, you know, we have seen an effect, I think, uh, perhaps from those new gun owners on some of the support for some of those specific policies, right? Uh, in the fact that almost every post-Uvalde poll has shown a decrease in support for assault and bans. This AP poll is the one outlier, actually, uh, and maybe could give you some indication that its sample is a little more um, skewed towards the the uh, pro-gun control side of things, um, mm -hmm. perhaps. But 
you know, it's it's trends are in line with what other polls are showing, but maybe the individual numbers might be a little bit um, a more uh, a little hotter on the pro gun control side. But uh, I do think that that effect is probably in part because of new gun owners. Um, and you also have seen a different poll from the AP, which asked new gun owners what they think about gun control policies or various gun policies. And the ones who were created during the last two years are actually um, less favorable of gun restrictions than previous uh, gun owners. So um, I don't want to I don't I don't think it makes sense to completely disregard the effect uh, new gun owners have had on, um, you know, support for gun control. Uh, it's just hasn't been a sea change uh, to this point. Uh, that maybe some people had expected to see. Um, and so, uh, you know, I, I think it's it's important to, like you said, not rely on one poll. Uh, I think there's a lot of interesting stuff to talk about the trends that are identified in that AP poll, but it is only one poll and there is other information out there that uh, might push back against some of the conclusions you'd draw if you just looked at that one poll. Um, and similarly, though, I want to look at uh, one race uh, that everybody has been talking about uh, in terms of the upcoming midterms. We've had this cycle of hype going into the last couple of months about a red wave coming. The polling uh, looks really good for Republicans in this upcoming midterm. Uh, you know, going back a couple months, uh, the president's poll, poll numbers are terrible. Um, but now things uh, the the uh, the conventional wisdom right now, what everyone's talking about, is the idea that that's all falling away, and Republicans are now in trouble, and Democrats are having have a much better chance of holding the House or or picking up seats in the Senate, even um, because there was the the voter um, ballot initiative in Kansas, which mm-hmm. um, was a you know an abortion uh, which would have allowed more abortion restrictions in the state. Uh, that lost unexpectedly. And then you saw uh, the Democrat win the special election in New York 19, which is something of a swing state or sorry, swing district uh, that most people expected the Republican to win that race. So now the conversation is all back the other way. Democrats are having a comeback. The president's approval ratings are up a little bit. He's back into like the 40s when he had been in the 30s. So I'm interested in your take where where things are headed. Uh, what, you know, what's the nightmare scenario to start off with? How, how do you, what do you think the worst case could be? Well, I mean, the the worst case is we don't take back the Senate, uh, and you know we don't take back the House. Uh, mm-hmm. That that would be the nightmare scenario, right? right. Democrats even add seats. Because, you know, on paper anyway, uh, Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema are the two senators that are preventing the filibuster from being nuked, right? So mm-hmm. uh, let's say you replace Pat Toomey with John Fetterman, who's already come out and said he's in favor of nuking the filibuster. Uh, let's say uh, Ron Johnson loses in Wisconsin, uh, and all of a sudden Democrats you know, pick up uh, a net of two seats. Um, theoretically, if they hold the House as well, then they could change the rules, get rid of the filibuster, they could pass legislation in the Senate with 51 votes, and then they would implement their gun control ban uh, or their, their uh, ban on so-called assault weapons yep. uh, and, you know, large capacity magazines. They would repeal the Protection of Lawful Commerce and Arms Act. 
Uh, they would try to, you know, destroy the firearms industry. Um, that that would be the nightmare scenario, right? If there's yeah. no check whatsoever uh, on uh, anti-gun Democrats in, in either chamber of commerce or Congress, rather, then, you know, gun owners are going to be one of the primary targets of uh, of um, the next session. Right. Um, and, that, and I'll say, like, right now, it's not out of this world to think that's could happen. It uh, is not. I mean, the president not himself unthinkable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The president yeah. himself just made this the exact comments that you're talking about. He said, if we pick up, we hold the House and pick up two seats in the Senate. He specifically said two seats uh, that will pass an assault weapons ban and all these other things that they obviously also want to pass. And mm-hmm. um, so, you know, with the trend, the way things have trended the last couple of weeks, it's not impossible to think that could happen if things continue to trend in that same direction. Now, how likely is it that that's going to be the case? Well, so, you know, and, and again, it's interesting because it's not really gun stuff that's driving this right now. We're sure. getting into the effects of, you know, the Dobbs decision. Uh, what's going to happen to the economy, right? Gas prices have been going down. Uh, there's been, you know, a little bit of good news on the economic front. Mm-hmm. Um, at the same time, there have been a lot of, you know, big warning signs that things are going to get rough and rocky this fall. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, so I, I, I listen, if if inflation starts to go up again in September and October when people start, I mean, I'm already clinching, uh, uh, you know, uh, getting ready to pay for my propane to heat my house this winter because I know yeah. that my bill is going to be hundreds of dollars higher than it was last time around. Yeah. So, you know, I think that I don't think the economy is going to save Joe Biden. Let's put it that way. And I think that uh, there may be another swing back towards Republicans uh, as we get closer to November, like, in, in, you know, let, let's say when the October numbers uh, start to come out. Um, yeah. Uh, you know, I, what kind of impact that is going to have? I don't know, because, you know, early voting starts so early in some mm. states now so that by the time, you know, uh, some of that uh, bad inflationary news hits in mid-October, a lot of ballots may have already been cast. Um I think really, I mean, I think it's undeniable that the Dobbs decision and what I see as the um, attempt by a lot of red state lawmakers to really overreach uh, on abortion uh, in the immediate aftermath. I I think that that really has engaged particularly uh, women voters. Mm. uh, That has been to the almost exclusive help of Democrats. And, you know, the. The messaging in Kansas, I thought, was really interesting. I talked with Rebecca Schmoy about this with um, the D.C. project a few weeks ago. You know, she's running for state representative in Kansas and she won her primary Mm -hmm. uh, the night that that uh, uh, ballot referendum failed. And one of the commercials that I saw for this ballot referendum was it was entirely freedom based, Stephen. Mm -hmm. It was you know, if you didn't like the government telling you what to do with mask mandates, if you don't like the government telling you what to do with teaching your kids, if you don't like the government telling you what to do, yada, 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 then you don't want the government telling you what to do when it comes to women's health care. And I think that's how they framed it. All right. Or reproductive rights. Um, it was not. I mean, it was a message that was tailor made for Kansas, but it was a pro freedom sure. message. Right. And and so I think. This is the danger I think Republicans are finding themselves in, um, is that, you know, they are being portrayed as being anti-freedom or very pick and choose when it comes to particular freedoms. Right. 
Um, well, I think, I, I, uh, you know, to me, it's it's less about the, you know, I, I think you, you probably have a good point there about um, whether or not Repu- Republicans are viewed as being overreaching on abortion or, uh, you know, and, and I don't want to get too much into the to the uh, nitty gritty of each political component of, of how this stuff's going to turn out. Uh, I think what's more, because uh, I think it's really hard to read like how, I mean, I, I agree with all your points there. Uh, I think it's hard generally, and you probably agree with this, to feel out how exactly one issue is going to drive an election one way or the other. Uh, certainly uh, the Kansas referendum and the the fact that the Democrat in that swing district ran uh, heavily on abortion implies that it's going to be a significant issue in the midterms, but it's hard to predict like, okay, so where's the, where's that going to play out as over the entire house of representatives? Um, maybe it'll limit how much, how many gains the Republicans can realistically make. But I think there's, uh, even beyond the sort of individual issues at play. I mean, obviously voting for the assault against is probably going to hurt a number of Democrats in, uh, more vulnerable districts, more purple districts, swing districts. Um, and so that, that yeah, especially since the Democrats aren't going to do the police funding bill, or at least they haven't. Right. Yeah. So far, right. You know, yeah. so now you've got folks like Abigail Spanberger on record as voting for a gun ban, but not being able to say I voted to fund police. Mm-hmm. And you're right. I think that is going to have an impact. On, I, I think uh, those individual issues will have an impact, uh-huh. uh, you know, a disparate impact, depending on what district you're looking at. Uh, but the bigger thing to me that would uh, and I'm interested in your take on this. Uh, that would imply that Republicans pro- will probably still win the House, at least. The Senate's a little more of a toss-up. Uh, it's hard. Yeah, that could go either way. But, the ha- you know, <clears throat> it's a midterm election. This is, the Republicans only need to pick up five seats. It, you know, there are extremely rare circumstances where the, the party in power doesn't lose seats in a midterm election. And... Generally, the way these go, in my experience, and, you know, you've uh, you've been watching this even longer than I have, but um, usually in a midterm, there's so, there's a ton of hype around the out of party uh, the, the out of power party getting has all this momentum and the polls look great, you know, six months out. And it's this is going to be a wave election and they're going to pick up 40 seats or 60. seats. it's going to be like 2010 or or 20, you know, 18 or whatever year you point to as like a big wave election year, then things get a little bit closer and things start to tighten up a little bit. Um, you know, there's, a, there's plenty of uh, uh, news events that can come and go where the president's uh, approval fluctuates a little bit and, and you start to start to get talk of, well, maybe it's not going to be a wave and maybe the empower party is going to pull it off and they're going to, actually hold on to everything. And then when you get closer to election day, it swings a little bit back in the other direction. That's my perception of how these things usually go. And it seems to me we're in that sort of middle period where, well, they lost this special election. You know, there was a ballot initiative. There's one or two things you can point to. Oh, the empowered party got these bills through that they can run on now. It's going to excite their base and blah, blah, blah. But there's, there's sort of a fundamental uh, nature at play here with midterm elections, which is that the pre- the president's not on the ballot. So whoever's part, whoever, whatever party he was part of, um, they're less likely to have as many people turn out in this election. 
just as a matter of, of natural course. And I think it would take something really epic to prevent Republicans from at least taking the House back because they just I, don't need to pick up many seats. Yeah, no, I agree with you. Uh, and with redistricting, I, mm-hmm. I, I think, it, you know, again, it would be. Um, it would again. It would be the nightmare scenario for Republicans because it is so achievable, right? Uh, it, it is expected uh, that Republicans would take back the House, given historical trends and given the you know small uh, majority that Democrats currently have. I mean, look, Democrats lost seats in twenty twenty uh, in a presidential election year. Republicans were able to gain seats in the House, right? So. Um, this should be an environment that is uh, very favorable to the out party, which right now is the GOP. Right. Um, I, I think that it is fair to say that, you know, Democrats have had a decent political news cycle, mm-hmm. uh, particularly over the last month, uh, as you know, as gas prices have been falling, certainly yep. the, their, their friends in the media have been happy to tout that, uh, you know, trying to uh, puff up the, uh, the economic news that they're seeing. Um, but, I think that I, I think you're right that this polling is probably an artifact of what's in the news right now. Yeah. And I would also say that, listen, you know, there are a lot of Americans who aren't following news very closely. Uh, uh, you know, they'll start to pay attention to the elections maybe after Labor Day. Uh, but, you know, they're tuned out. A lot of folks are on vacation or maybe they're working two jobs to uh, to pay for gas and, and clothes and back to school stuff. Um, but I, I think when Americans do start to engage um, as we get closer to the elections, that that will you will start to see a change. Um, but, you know, again, you make a really good point. when You talk about how hard it is to make these national predictions about what are pretty individualized races. Hmm. Um, you know, in Texas, for instance, the gubernatorial polls that I've seen uh have shown no real movement like Beto O'Rourke has gained compared to six months ago. Yeah. But he hasn't gained much ground over the last two months, right? He's still stuck at six or yeah. seven, anywhere from five to seven points behind Greg Abbott in polling. Well, Ten was the um, last one I saw, but yeah. It, it, okay, so there you go. Uh, so, you know, again, I, I I would caution people to not to read too much into these national polls because I think ultimately this isn't a national election, Yeah. Uh, right? It, it, you make that case with the president not being on the ballot. These mm-hmm. are... They may be not, they may be federal offices, but these are local races for the most part. Sure, and I, you know I think ultimately, what I would come down to on both of these points that we've talked about, both of these issues we've gone through here today, is like there is reason to be concerned. These are not, um, you know, uh, crazy thoughts out there about uh, the long term upward swing of people wanting stricter gun laws generally. And the concern that Republicans could blow this midterm election and then Democrats could uh, basically just, you know, eliminate the filibuster and pass whatever they want. Those are these are not things that are crazy to think and really something people should probably be concerned about and would put thought into and uh, put effort into counteracting. But at the same time, they're not necessarily the most likely uh, outcome and they're not maybe the there are good reasons to think that. Uh, you know, there's there's counter narratives uh, that make sense as well. Right. Is that would that sum this, up, this whole episode up fairly well? Yeah, I think so. Um, yeah, I, I think you're right about that. And, and 
again, I think that gun owners really should be looking more long term. I mean, obviously, pay very close attention to what's going on here. I would encourage folks to get active and engaged mm-hmm. uh, for this election cycle. Um, but yeah, don't lose sight of of the long term. Mm-hmm. You know, the gun control lobby is really good at playing the long game, and sometimes we're more reactive than proactive. Uh, and I don't think that's to our advantage. So, yeah, I, I think that's an excellent point going forward so that we can, you know, again, ensure that the, the trend line is towards, uh, you know, the, the, the recognition and embrace of, of all of our constitutionally protected rights. But that includes the right to keep and bear arms. Great. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us again this week, Cam. Uh, where can people find more of your writing and, and your, your own show? Yes. Um, so just go to bearingarms.com. We've got the a link to the Bearing Arms Cam and Company podcast right there on the uh, homepage, but you can also find us on YouTube and Rumble and all of the major podcast platforms. Uh, and then the uh, the writing, again, uh, at bearingarms.com. Awesome. And thank you for the invite, as always, Steve. we got to get you back on Cam and Company here yes. before long. Yes, we'll have to do another uh, swap episode soon. Absolutely. <laughs> all right. Well, uh, we're going to head over to the news update now. Thank you so much, Cam. Thanks, Stephen. All right, it's time for the news update. We're here with contributing writer Jake Fogelman. How are you doing today, Jake? I'm doing all right, Steve. How are you? I'm doing okay. I got a new uh, Nirvana shirt. That's pretty cool. Very nice. I like it. Um, But you have a new story that's even better. Um, This one comes out of the federal courts out of Texas uh, and deals with 18 to 20-year-olds, right? Yeah, that's right. So, uh, as you said, uh, a judge in the... Northern District of Texas, a federal court judge, just struck down the portion of Texas's gun carry law that limits uh, adults who can carry being 21 and older. It basically said mm. there's no historical tradition in this country of limiting the rights of young adults to bear arms uh, and put an injunction on the state of Texas from uh, enforcing that provision of the law. So that's a, that's a pretty big deal, especially because Texas is a permitless carry state. Um, so extending the rights of permitless carry to 18 to 20 year olds is a, a, a definitely a big ruling. Yeah. And this was um, this this was from the U.S. District Court for the Northern District of Texas. Judge Mark Pittman, he wrote, uh, based on the Second Amendment's text, as informed by founding era history and tradition, the court concludes that the Second Amendment protects against this prohibition. Texas's statutory scheme must therefore be enjoined to the extent that the law that law-abiding 18 to 20-year-olds are prohibited from applying for a license to carry a handgun. So this requires that Texas accept applications to carry uh, for anyone who's an adult, basically. Right. Um, and and so that's a pretty big ruling. Um, it's one of the first post-Bruin rulings, of course. You know, we've had a couple now, uh, and you're starting to see the impact. Although I will say, uh, just as an aside, we we also got a ruling about the President Biden's ghost gun kit ban uh, rule that went into effect this week. And a federal judge in that case upheld the ability of the ATF to uh, redefine what a firearm is uh, and didn't necessarily do a full analysis of the history, but uh, effectively said, that there is a longstanding tradition of regulating commercial sale of, of firearms in the United States. And so we had sort of dueling, uh, dueling rulings. That's right. This week. 
Uh, but this one, I think, is a bit more significant because it's it's in line with what we're seeing uh, on the front of young adults or adults under 21. Uh, and um, there have been a couple of cases that dealt with uh, the gun rights of, of that group. Uh, you wrote about a couple of these in your piece. What were some of the other ones? Yeah. So last year, the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals, which is the federal appeals court, um, struck down basically a prohibition on people 18 to 20 year old from being able to purchase handguns, which is a federal law. Um, and it struck that down. So that's unconstitutional. And this predates Bruin, as you pointed out um, and earlier this year, another ruling pre that predates Bruin out of the ninth circuit, a three judge panel for the ninth circuit said that the California's ban on under 21 year olds purchasing semi, I think it's semi-automatic centerfire rifles is how they defined it. Essentially. Yeah. AR what, what and, Right. What California calls AR um, assault weapons. Right. That in California, they had a ban on anyone 18 to 20 being able to purchase those guns. Right. Uh, and the judge struck that, that yeah, down and said that was unconstitutional. So, yeah, as you pointed out, it's kind of a, a trend that we're starting to see in the federal court system where judges are starting to find that there's really no rationale, or at least in their opinion, there's no rationale for restricting Second Amendment rights to this group. Um, there's no history for it. And I think that's only going to be more clear in light of Bruin and this, this judge here in the, the Texas case drew pretty extensively on the history of the American founding. Uh, he pointed out to the fact that 18 to 20 year olds were regularly part of the militia. So therefore carried arms. Um, and some, there's some interesting citations in there as well. He pointed to uh, military heroes throughout the country's history. Uh, if you guys look at the ruling pointed to people like Audie Murphy, famous world war II hero, uh, but, but basically to just essentially make the point that, look, young adults have been able to bear arms forever in this country. So he, there's no reason to necessarily restrict them from doing so now. Yeah. Or at the very least, you can't put a special prohibition on right. them that isn't applied to everyone. You know, I, the ruling doesn't come down on uh, the idea that, you know, permitless carry has to be the only way of regulating gun carry. But if you're going to do permitless carry, you can't deny that to 18 to 20 year olds, right? Because historically they weren't um, singled out from uh, gun rights protections. Uh, and in fact, were, as, as you just mentioned, they're a significant part of uh, the group that won independence in the United States. And, and right. of course, they remain a significant part of our military today and law right. enforcement. That's right. So. Um, one thing that kind of tempers the ruling a little bit, though, he did uh, before enjoining the law, he put a 30 day delay on that mm -hmm. order, um, essentially to give the state of Texas time to consider an appeal. I reached out to the Department of Public Safety. I didn't hear back about whether or not they intend to do so. Uh, but that, I think that creates an interesting dynamic where now the government of Texas, which is a very red state, mm -hmm. a very pro-gun state, is now put in an awkward position where do they challenge this and try to uphold this restriction or do they allow the ruling to stand and let 18 to 20 year olds carry guns going forward? Yeah. And, you know, that's an especially fraught question in Texas right now, because one of the other interesting things is as the courts have gone um, towards protecting the, the Second Amendment rights of 18 to 20 year olds, public opinion has gone the other way. Right. Uh, is, you know, especially this year, when after um, the events in Buffalo and Uvalde, especially where you had 18 year olds 
carrying out these horrific attacks, public opinion has shifted significantly towards uh, either severely restricting the gun rights of uh, that age group or at least putting further restrictions on them. For instance, the bipartisan uh, gun bill that was passed earlier this year, the, the federal level adds a new layer of scrutiny for 18 to 20 year olds uh, when they're going to buy guns. They're effectively put into a, a sort of de facto waiting period uh, as they, uh, as the law requires a more thorough or you know, more, I don't know what the right word for this is, but more extensive check that involves actual, instead of databases being queried, it's you have to call up actual people, which is inevitably going to add time to that check, right. uh, which is why in practice it feels more like a, uh, a waiting period. But, um, you know, and you've seen support for restricting the sale of, of AR-15s and other firearms to 18 to 20 year olds. Florida passed uh, a ban like that after Parkland, uh, where you had another um, shooter who was in that age group. And so public opinion has shifted towards wanting to restrict the rights of uh, 18 to 20 year olds, where, whereas at the same time, the courts have begun to add more protections for their, for their gun rights. No, that's, I think that's a, a good point. We'll see how that plays out in the political sphere, because hmm. yeah, you might see a lot of backlash to these rulings. If that's the case, if public opinion keeps moving that way, but judicial decisions keep going the other way, that could create a, a pretty tense environment, I think, uh, in terms of gun right. politics. Of course, uh, that's sort of the point of the courts, right? Is that sure. They're meant to uh, protect people's rights even when uh, it's unpopular. So right. uh, what, what you're, it is an interesting phenomenon to see uh, as the general public is less willing to um, protect the rights of, of this age group while the courts have become more willing to do it. Um, so, uh, yeah, but you're right. That could obviously lead to some tension down the line. But, um, you know, you see this in, I mean, a lot. I, my guess is that public opinion is not too favorable towards people who take the Fifth Amendment, for instance, right. um, or uh, to Fourth Amendment protections for people that most suspect are doing something illegal. So that's sort of the nature of right. having these protections in the or first place. Even that, free speech these days is pretty unpopular yeah, with certain crowds, right. and but courts routinely uphold free speech rights. So yeah, that's so a good point. you know. That's what you're, you know, it's not necessarily an unusual thing for the courts right. to buck public opinion on when it comes to these sorts of protections. But, uh, but at the same time, it's also, this is a relatively new trend in yeah. uh, for the federal courts to move in this direction of, uh, you know, saying, saying that, uh, you know, that you can't specifically restrict gun rights for the, these age groups. So if you're going to pass a permitless carry law, you can't, you can't, say that 18 to 20 year olds uh, who are otherwise law abiding can't can't uh, partake in the same legal protections as anyone over 21. No, that's right. Um, so well, yeah, we'll continue to follow that. Of course, uh, I doubt that this will be the last time an 18 to 20 year old restriction is before the court. And it'll be interesting. You're right. It'll be very interesting to see what Texas does, given their uh, you know reputation as a pro gun state. 
are they going to continue to fight this? Uh, I think that stay that the judge put on is a fairly common thing you'll see. Yeah. Um, not It doesn't always happen, but uh, it's pretty common for a judge to stay their ruling to give time for uh, the government to decide on whether it wants to appeal or not when it's when one of its laws is struck down. So sure. Um, we'll, we'll continue to follow though. I'm sure you will update us when there uh, is a development in this case. Absolutely. But for now, we've got uh, another member segment this week. So let's head over to that. All right. Welcome back to another one of my favorite segments, the member segment where we get to talk to a reload member. We have Cody Claxton here with us today. Welcome to the show, Cody. Thank you. I'm really excited about this. Um, I, uh, I've been reading the reload now for, well, I think ever since you launched it. And uh, it's, yeah, I'm always looking forward to the newsletters that come out. And um, your, um, your, your reporting is really insightful and timely. And so um, I'm, I have, by the way, so, you know, I promote this. I have about um, a newsletter of about 300 members for IDPA. And I always put your link in there and I make sure everybody knows uh, about your um, about your periodical. That's really kind of you. It's very nice of you to say. Uh, really appreciate your support, especially somebody, you know, from the very beginning. That's that's uh, that's really awesome. Um, you know, obviously, this is a, the reload is a, is a tiny publication in terms of um, you know, well, we don't have any big corporate backing or anything like that. So it's really the members, uh, support that is the only thing that allows us to continue to operate. But, but I want to talk a little bit more about you. Uh, so how sure. did you, uh, get interested in firearms? Where did you grow up shooting or was it something you came to later in life? It was something I came to later in life. I grew up in Florida and, uh, when I was a teenager, we would go out, uh, shooting with my dad and my uncles, uh, but uh, we were shooting uh, armadillos with a 22 long rifle, uh-huh. you know. Uh, but once I um, I went into the military, um, I got trained on an AR-15, AR M16 at the time. And, uh, you know, it was just a part of basic training. And after that, I didn't, I didn't see any action in the military. So after that, I, you know, went to college, got married, raised kids. I really didn't see, uh, nobody had ever threatened my life. Uh, so I didn't really see any reason for me to own a firearm. So I was kind of an anti-gun guy. I, I kind of, mm. you know, had the, well, why do people need guns? And the future of humanity should be peaceful, right? <laughs> and um, it wasn't until um, I was divorced and had a, um, my kids were away at college. I was home by myself and I thought, you know, there was, there was some, crime in the neighborhood. So I thought I'll, I'll go get a pistol uh, for home defense. Mm-hmm. Um, I like to tell the story. I took the pistol to the range, um, I to the NRA range actually, and uh, shot it. And I thought there's clearly something wrong with this gun because it doesn't shoot straight. <laughs> so yes. I thought maybe a different gun would work. Well, that one didn't shoot straight either. And then I realized it was me. And um, yes, I identified the problem was not the the gun. (laughs) Exactly. And so I saw somebody at the range who was really good, you know, and I thought, hmm, I'd I'd like to be that good. Right. So I asked her how she got to be that way. And uh, she said um, she shoots IDPA, which stands Mm. for International Defensive Pistol Association. That's that's one of the most popular uh, 
competitive shooting leagues out there, right? It is. You know, it is. We have disciplines, um, I guess. Exactly. The USPSA and IDPA are are the biggest. Um, I was interested in IDPA because it was more defensive in nature um, as opposed to pure competition, um, Mm -hmm. which is mostly what USPSA is about. Right. And um, the other thing is it was fun. I mean, there were things I would go to matches and they would have you sitting in the in the, uh, the front of a Jeep. And you had to defend yourself, you know, uh, from targets around you, or you would have to be carrying a briefcase and you'd have to shoot while moving. Uh, so there were a lot of skills that I was totally unfamiliar with. So it was really fun to do. Um, about a year after doing that, um, I got a death threat. Somebody really? tried to kill me. Yeah. It was a it was kind of a strange thing. It was a voicemail. And somebody had forwarded a voicemail from another location, so the police couldn't track it. But um, it was uh, basically the guy knew my name, he knew my address, and he said, you know, you're a dead man kind of thing. And um, so that's when I thought to myself, my gosh, I might actually have to use a weapon to really defend myself. And then I began to realize it isn't really just about having a firearm that somebody could just try to beat me up, you know? And that's when I said, well, you know what? I'm going to learn some combatives. So I went to Krav Maga for three years and uh, I, uh, I learned combatives, you know, a lot of good combatives, uh, gun disarms, things like that. Right. And right. Uh, at the same time I was going out and shooting IDPA and kind of learning how to shoot better. Yeah. So you're really, really taking on a, a holistic approach to self-defense uh, which is something that a lot of high high end, uh, you know, gun trainers will recommend. You know, like uh, John Korea over at Active Self Protection, um, which by the way, I would do I do their podcast every week, so uh, oh. I've probably plugged that more often on this show. But yeah, uh, they have a great podcast that talks about self defense encounters. But that, that's one of the things they're big on is you know, don't just train at the range with your gun. You got to think about all sorts of different. Um, potential self-defense encounters. What happens if somebody attacks you and it's not lethal force? You can't use your gun. You're not justified. Right. Well, what are you going to do then? Like, you're just gonna, <laughs> I guess get beat up or, or uh, you know, you got to have some plan. Uh, you know, I carry pepper spray, but but uh, obviously being competent in uh, grappling and, and mm-hmm. physical fighting, I mean, that can also come into play in, the, in a deadly encounter. Absolutely. Well, I mean, so you might have to fight with somebody over a gun in a, in a, you know, life or death situation. But uh, that's, so that's interesting. So you really uh, run the whole gambit. You're, you had experience in the military. You uh, stayed away from guns for a while after that, but then got interested in competitive shooting. And then you had the, a real world, uh, I mean, death threat that uh, took your training to another level. Yeah. Uh, I think that's pretty uh, pretty fascinating story, uh, you know, through the whole whole phase. Usually it's like people get into one or the other or, right. you know, uh, and that's, you know, well, I went, I, I joined the military. So that's how I got interested in guns or I had a threat against my life. So that's how I got interested right. or I, I liked right. the competition aspect of it. But you, you really uh, ran the whole gambit. Yeah. And then um, once I started doing a lot more IDPA, uh, there was a club up in Thermont, Maryland that uh, had lost its match director. And uh, one of my mentors um, at the time, 
uh, he said, hey, why don't you consider becoming a match director? So then I started actually designing stages, right, uh, for IDPA matches. Um, and so I uh, really have had a lot of fun with that. I design, people tell me I, I design really challenging stages, not so much from a marksmanship perspective, although there is that, right? Mm -hmm. But it's more like uh, one of the stages I just had, you were stuck behind a tank trap on your knees and you had to bend down and around and work your way around a tank trap in order to uh, shoot some targets, right? Around some barrels in front of you. Um, we had another stage where you were sitting in the back seat of a car and the car was actually up on the berm. So it was tilted and you were in the back seat. It was a bench seat. So you had to hold yourself up to one side of the car, right? And then when you let go, you would kind of slide down to the other side of the car and um, like you'd been in a car accident. Oh, right? wow. And so um, so I, I designed stages that I think are going to put you in a realistic situation. You where, do you, where do you get your inspiration for that? Do you, do you watch things like active self-protection for sort of real world encounters or how, how do you come up with the stage ideas? I, I do. Um, a lot of ideas, um, I have to say, you know, cause I used to do a lot of matches and sanction matches as well, where people um, did a lot of challenging things. And I kind of learned from the masters of that art. Right. Mm. And so uh, then I just improvise, you know, I'll just say, okay, I want to put the car up on the berm. I want to make it a little more interesting. You know, the idea just kind of uh, occurs to me. And then, um, and then I uh, build, build the stage around that. Um, and so uh, we, we just had our big sanction match up at um, called the Potomac Grail up in uh, Thermont, Maryland. We had 120 shooters. Um, we had, here's an interesting thing about uh, what's happening in the firearms community and the firearms marketplace. 53 of those 120 shooters are shooting carry optics. Mm, it has yeah. been a huge growth in people who are carrying and shooting concealed uh, carry optics guns. And yeah, the market uh, for that's really exploded. Oh, it's taken off. Unbelievable. So many more options now. Yeah, exactly. And, um, you know, it's to the point now where, I mean, it used to be many years ago, uh, 1911 was the gun, right? Everybody shot 1911 in competition and they carried 1911s. Then there was kind of the, the Glock trend, right? Uh, Glock was, became very popular. Um, and then um, I would say around 2010 or so, um, we really started seeing uh, some foreign guns come in. Um, so the CZs became very popular. Um, the uh, Kinnick, um, and a number of other, um, so to say, foreign guns, Springfield um, XD guns, which are made overseas in that area, um, were also very popular. So it's uh, really been interesting to kind of see the growth in um, and the migration, so to say, in guns um, yeah. and the quality of the guns and also the interesting um, ways in which uh, guns have changed, like, you know, the Sig Sauer uh, design where the serial number is not on the frame on the outside frame. It's like a shell. The serial numbers on the mechanism right. inside. So yeah, you can change modular. the shell out, mm -hmm. which was uh, really kind of through the ATF for a little bit of a loop. Cause they're like, oh, wait a minute. Uh, <laughs> are we okay with this? <laughs> <laughs> right. Yes. 
Um, yeah, no, I mean, the, the move to modularity to incorporating a lot more, uh, I would say, competition features into your standard carry guns like a, an RMR cut for, for a red dot, uh, you know, that, that's really accelerated over the last couple of years. You can see it if you go into any gun store. Um, or go to any IDPA match. Uh, but mm -hmm. uh, we really appreciate you taking the time to come on and just share a little bit of your story. Sure. Uh, can you tell people, um, you know, how you found about about the reload and maybe why they might want to consider to uh, put a little ad here in here at the end? Sure. I mean, uh, you know, uh, I can't remember. I think uh, I can't exactly remember how I learned about the reload, but um, it might have been through VCDL through a VCDL newsletter or something. Um, but in any case, it was, I think, your your first newsletter. And I was like, this is great. Um, and I, I also like the, um, you know, the professionalism of uh, your journalism. Uh, you wanted to get it right. It wasn't just kind of a propaganda push, so to say. It was, let's try to get the reporting right. But let's also make sure that we're not, uh, that we're, you know, uh, so to say, embracing um the gun community in a way that is holistic and mm -hmm. uh, beneficial. Right. Um, and so one of the things that um, I really liked about the reload is also the newsletter is really great because it kind of lets me know what's, you know, what's coming up. And um, uh, that's also something that um, I can um, link to in my, in my newsletter so that other people can, can try to read your, read your, and what, what do you call your, you call it a journal? What do you, what do you really call it? Uh, uh, publication. Publication. Okay. That's, uh, I think that's probably the best term for it. You know, it's it's newsletter driven, but we have a website obviously as well where people can go and read the stories or even the, the newsletters themselves are all also published on the website. So, mm -hmm. you know, we try to give people as, as many options as the as possible with the resources we have to find, to, you know, to read the reporting we're doing, uh, and then give that extra value to the members, you know, a lot of analysis pieces are members only, and they get the podcast a day early and they get to be on the podcast, just like, <laughs> like you right, right now. Okay. Um, so we, we try to find ways to, to bring extra value so that people can support the reporting, but also get, you know, their money's worth when they're, when they're buying a subscription. By the way, your last podcast, I can't remember the name of the guy, the Washington state, um, yes, Alan Gottlieb from the Second Amendment Foundation. Oh my God, that was such a fantastic podcast. I think I listened to that two or three times. Yeah, uh, he's been around forever and is really one of those guys that's driving the the legal part of the gun rights movement, but doesn't get as much of the attention as like the NRA or somebody like that. Right. Yeah. So um, I don't know how much more time we have. I think this is about it. Okay. But actually, so you mentioned you have a newsletter. Can you tell people where they might want to, is it something that's public? Can people sign up for it? Sure. You can sign up for it. Uh, it's actually part of Google groups. So you go to, go to Google groups and you, um, you uh, search on Thermont IDPA. Um, that's my newsletter, the Thermont IDPA newsletter. And also I should mention, I'm now the area coordinator for IDPA from South Carolina all the way to Delaware. So if anybody's interested in uh, getting into um, defensive-based competitive shooting, um, you know, you can reach me uh, there or also my email address is va.m, excuse me, Virginia, va.md.idpa at gmail.com. And I'll, I'll get you, I'll find a club where you can attend and get you started on your first match. 
Awesome. Well, I, I might be emailing you soon. I've done a little bit of IDPA and competitive shooting, but only a tiny amount. Mm. Uh, so I'm, you know, maybe I should start uh, doing some more. So that sounds uh, good look for my email as well. I will. But thank you so much for coming on. And that's all we've got for this week. We will see you guys again next week.